G'day mate, welcome to episode 62 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this week's episode, Exponential Performance Coach Nick Taylor sits down with ultra runner Sarah Brown to talk about her journey through ultra running and also her experiences in the recent Alps to Ocean Ultra Marathon. I found this interview really interesting, especially how Sarah goes about balancing her full-time workload with training for ultra marathon races. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. All right, welcome along, guys, to the Exponential Performance Podcast uh, with a special interview today with Sarah Brown. Now, Sarah Brown is an ultra runner from Dunedin, and we thought we'd get her along to, to talk about a race she's just completed uh, that is of monumental proportion, um, and we'll, we'll get to that shortly. Uh, but Sarah also holds a full-time job as a finance manager at the university in Dunedin. So she's doing a whole bunch of training, which we're going to hear about, and holding down a professional job. Um, so I thought it'd be really cool to get her, get her along and have a bit of a chat. Uh, now the disclaimer goes out that, that Sarah and I are, are good friends, so if, if you pick up on that, then that's all good. Um, but it should help for a, a funnier interview. But thank you for coming along, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. That's cool. So we're going to going to start off with a few quick fire questions, um, and they're just to get get you warmed up, um, and you can pass on any that you don't want to answer. Okay. Okay, I know that. Cool. So, how old are you? Thirty-eight. You got to think about that, didn't you? I did. So, I forget how old yeah. I am. It's getting too old. <laughs> Fair enough. Too. And how how do you have your coffee? Oh, I can't admit how I have my coffee because people will look down on me. Um, I like having cream in my coffee. Just a little bit, tiny little bit. There you go. There's, there's probably yeah, a huge Americano. community. Single shot Americano with a little bit of cream. There you go. But there'll be a huge community of people listening here that will also adopt the cream in their coffee. So oh. don't, have to, don't have to worry about that. Uh, what's your favourite food? Um... My favourite food is, that's tough, chocolate and wine are the first things that come nice. to my mind. Good combination. Yes. Yes. And what's one item you cannot live without? My Lululemon clothes. <laughs> All of them. All nice. of them. There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> yep. The last book you read? Um, the last book I read, I'm reading The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People by Stephen yeah. Covey, and I'm listening to it. I listen to it on audiobook, and I'm listening to it yep. for the second time. Cool. So that it's counts as reading it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that book. That's really cool. It's amazing. Yeah. And are you a morning person or a night owl? Definitely a morning person. Cool. And did you have a favorite soft toy growing up? And if so, what was his or her name? Nope. None. No. No goals, okay. no, nothing like that. No. There you go. Mm. There you go. Um, and final one is what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, like what's, what's your motivation to get up? Uh, all the things that I want to achieve before I get to work, probably. Like I said, I'm a morning person, so I like getting lots of things done before yeah. other people can take control of my day. Perfect. Perfect. And that might give some people an insight into, into how 
Sarah become so successful, I guess, with her ultra running um, by being a morning person, but but taking control, I guess, in the morning before work gets in the way. Mm-hmm. So, so before we get to the Alps to Ocean race, we're just going to interested in to know like how many kilometers do you think you've run in the last twelve months, roughly? Uh, well, um, I, I, added this, I added it up today, so I've done about four and a half thousand kilometers in the last twelve months, which has an oh. average of about eighty-six kilometers a week. That's cool. That's cool. It's a, a decent amount of kilometres. It's probably more than what I would like to admit. Yeah, it's mm. a lot. Yeah, that's that's. I guess the total distance across that sort of period is is relative to yourself, though. You know, yes, you, you've done yes. some big events and had some big weeks in, in preparation for that. So four yeah. and a half is a is a really cool amount. I've never done as many races, ultra races, in the last twelve months ever before. Hmm. Yeah, and that certainly helps tick up the Ks. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do you know how many metres of elevation there is in that? I do, 118,000. So that's, okay. I worked out again in average, it's about 2,270 a week, which is a lot. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's monumental. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. Uh, it helps I mean, I guess it, right? Yeah, exactly, else. I was going to say, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's a great place for that. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm interested to know how many pairs of shoes have you been through in the last five months? Count. I completely <laughs> lost count. I go through shoes like once, probably once every two or three months. Yeah, okay. Yeah, nice. That's cool. Yeah. You do have two or three on the go at any one time. Yes. Yeah, and they do. There's a lot of runners do talk about that, don't they? Um, yeah. Just to spread the load over different types of shoes. Yeah, I definitely did that because I've moved to the ultras, which uh, mm. I think are more, you know, for ultra runners, and it took a long time to get used to them, so I mixed yeah. up my different shoes. Yeah, certainly. And we could probably have a whole podcast and, and looking at that movement into zero drop shoes um, and uh, the slow progression that's needed mm. um, to avoid blowing out and, and blowing calves and, and so forth. So, so yeah. that's cool. Well, Probably good. I actually got injured on the, okay. um, the race that we're going to talk about, the Alps Ocean, and I think part of it was to do with the zero drop shoes because I hurt my Achilles. Mm, yeah. Okay. So even with yeah. all my preparation and all yeah. of the getting used to it, it still, it still made a difference. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's, that's good to know. We'll, we'll touch on that um, a wee bit down the track. Um, and what's the coolest event that you've done? It could be the smallest event or the, the biggest um, the biggest in my mind would probably be, so not actually a race, the first time I had a go at running the Kepler, just on a you know random day. In fact, we've run yeah. it together. Um, yes. But before that, when I was probably in my early 20s, I remember walking the Kepler track, and I had just started running at that time. And I remember seeing some people come through the last hut, the motor hour hut, end of the day, and they had run it. And I remember thinking, you what? You ran it? How on earth do you do that? And But the seed was sown, and then fast forward, you know, 10 years, or probably even more than that, like maybe almost 15 years, and I ran it for the first time. Mm. I couldn't wipe the smile off my face because it was like a dream come true. Yeah. So I didn't actually yeah, do the I, race. I just went and did it. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. And it's such a beautiful part of the country. Um, for those of you that don't know, the Kepler is down in, in Tiana, so in Fiordland, um, sort of the bottom west-hand corner, I guess, of New Zealand, um, and it's a mixture of sort of alpine passes, looking up some massive big fjords, and then kind of a rainforest that undulates out to the 
Uh, and it is stunning. It's one of the great walks. Um, mm. And like Sarah said, there is a, a race over it every year which sells out um, year on year. But you can go any time of the year, um, safety-wise, obviously, and the winter's not ideal. Um, but And do it yourself. So I highly recommend getting there if you can and having a, having a go. Mm. Cool. But even though it wasn't the, 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 the best race you've ever, or the best coolest thing you've ever done, the mm. Alps to Ocean. Now, mm. without giving too much of it away, the Alps to Ocean is a, a track that's been made, I guess, by the New Zealand government, um, which runs from Mount Cook um, all the way out to Omaru, which is on the east mm. coast of the South Island in New Zealand. Um, and so I'll get Sarah to, to give us a wee rundown on the event, um, sort of how many k's it was altogether, um, and and the structure of it, just to give a bit of a, a background. Mm. Okay, thanks, Nick. The one thing I will say at the start was this is the second year that this event has been run, and unlike these kind of races that happen overseas, and they're quite common overseas, this race, all the proceeds went to have, go to charity. So the organisers don't take any money for themselves. They're local businessmen in Omaru. And the guy who has been running it is Michael Sandry. And all of the money goes back into youth development in Omaru, which is an amazing cause. Like, how good is it to go running for a week and know that you are actually helping young people to change their lives? So that's mm. probably the first thing. The The race itself was about 325 kilometres over a period of seven days. And we started mm. in Mount Cook and finished... Everyone bussed to Mount Cook and we finished in Omaru a week later. And we stayed in tents. There were two races. You could either choose to be unsupported, which meant that you carried all of your food, your sleeping bag, your sleeping mat, and everything else, all your mandatory gear yourself. Um, I didn't choose to do that one. Just actually doing a multi-day race was enough for me. And so I took the supported option, which meant we had 16 kgs that we had to fit everything into. And actually, that's not a lot of weight when you consider. I think mm. my gear no. was about 9 kgs, and so I didn't have a lot. I only had 7 kgs for 7 days of food. So yeah. I was feeling like the whole week was going to be a lot of deprivation. <laughs> um, there wasn't many too many choices of what I was going to take for food. The only thing they supplied were was hot water and cold water, so no showers, um, there were toilets along the way, although not as many as I might have liked to have had on the <laughs> checkpoints during the day. <laughs> um, but there was about 18 tents every... So there was a group of volunteers that helped put up the tents every day. And so we had six people sleeping to one tent. Um, tents got pretty smelly by the end of the week. And so each day, um, a typical day would kind of start like this, was get woken up at 5am to a, a cacophony of songs where things like Wake Me Up When It's Over, Run to Paradise, um, One Step In Front Of The Other. Like, it was so cheesy. It was hilarious. And every morning I had a good laugh about yeah. that. And we started running at 7 most days. It was freezing cold in the mornings, like really, really cold. You'd be nice and warm in the tent, but by the time you got up and had breakfast and packed everything up, I was usually shivering by the time we started. And then any, you know, and then we started running. So there were this race caters to the elite runners, to the also the people who are doing it to to make a bucket their bucket list. So my mother did it, my mum did it, and she walked it all. So she decided, and there were a lot of people like that that were just doing this to see if they could do it. And then you had some real elite 
athletes that were still running four minute kilometers on the last day so there was a huge range of you know you'd run anywhere from seven in the morning to about one in the afternoon but others wouldn't come in until like 10 o'clock at night so it was a huge day for those that were walking and once you finished the for the day it was a matter of trying to get yourself ready for the next day which meant visiting the physio tent we had a group of physios that were there um, lining up to the nurses to help um, pop any blisters or take care of anything and there was also a couple of doctors that were helping out with anything else and so it was just a matter of um, preservation really and it was just fueling up for the next day and eating lots of food and mm-hmm. sitting around chatting just trying to recover in time to go to bed probably like seven or eight at night and then get up and do the whole thing again yeah that, that's that, impressive that's yeah even just the, the description of it kind of makes um, I guess someone like myself a wee bit quivery and sweaty and the and the thought of having to do something like that. Mm. Yeah, the idea of it sounded great and I love telling people, oh, I'm going to do this race. But actually the reality of how do you get up and run day after day was um, something that started dawning on me as this as it, the closer it got. I was like, this is ridiculous. How do you do this? <laughs> yeah. It's, I want to, um, one thing you're saying, that the supported versus unsupported groups um, mm. unsupported athletes have access to like the, the physio and the nurse and so forth as well? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. It was so a matter of... Only, yeah, okay, so the only difference was they had to carry their sleeping bag and sleeping mat, mm. but everything else was pretty much the same. We had to carry a daily allowance of food, so the minimum requirements okay. that we had to take was about 2,200 calories, I think, where it said mm-hmm. they had to carry seven days' worth on the first day. Whereas uh, we would carry one yeah. day or there was one, yes. the longest day was 90 kilometres and we had to carry two days worth. So 4,400 calories plus all the mandatory gear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the, the fact that in, in most cases a, a stage race that is supported. I mean, if we think of like the Pioneer is probably the other main example as a mountain mm. bike stage race in New Zealand. Supported, well, they only have one option, but supported the bear is like full on catered. Like you might as well be in a hotel, except for that you're in a tent that they pitch for you. Um, mm-hmm. You've got your own individual tent, your own gear bag. They take it all for you, and it's like a smorgasbord at the end of each day. Yeah, um, don't they feed you? Don't they do yeah. everything for you? <laughs> yeah, that's so that lot. kind of makes yours seem like a unsupported race quite easily. Um, so it's amazing that either the supported option is as basic as that that you have to carry mm-hmm. your own food even for dinners and so forth. Um, yeah. But yeah, that there is an unsupported option as well that some people obviously were crazy enough to take on board. Mm. If they offered a luxury one, even if I had to pay more money, I would definitely sign up for that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think a lot of people probably would as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll be giving feedback on that. <laughs> but you said so. You, so your mum did it, um, and I know your dad was part of the events crew as well because you're you were born. Well, you, you grew up in Omaru, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So in terms of, you know, you have, your mum was doing it as well, the, the money has been donated to a, a charity based in your hometown. Mm-hmm. How much of that was a, a sort of a motivational factor or a, a hindrance at times, I guess, for you? Um, it, was, it was a motivation factor. Initially, I was put off probably by the cost, but then when I, re- when I found out that it was for a charity, that yep. made me change my mind. Um, and yeah, growing up in Omro, 
Omar is a small town and I definitely got well supported through the licensing trust to do different things and yep. knowing that the locals really get behind it and I think there's something in that. I, the people who came from overseas, because there were more people from overseas than there were New Zealanders doing the event, okay. and everyone who has done these kind of events overseas, like the Grand Grand is probably the most famous one in America, they all said there was something really special about this race, and I think that's because the locals really got behind it. So, like, my dad is a good example. He's a self-employed businessman in Omaru, as were all of the other volunteers. Like, we had physios that have a practice in Omaru. They gave up their entire yeah. week's income to come and support, and we had two doctors that did that, two nurses, and there was just so many people that run businesses in Omaru that came along and supported, like, the main sponsors being Anchor, they and they're also personal friends. They were just they just believe in this and they love the fact that they are giving people the opportunity to see this part of the country but also have an impact on the community. Like what's not to love about that and being involved with it. There's something really special about it. Um, and that's for sure. And it's it's really cool. I mean Omar is not too far from Dunedin where you now live, um, and where I live. And it, it is cool that these these events are bringing uh, the, the smaller towns onto a world stage, I guess, from these mm-hmm. international athletes that have come over here, they've felt mm-hmm. that something special and unique about our events, and they go home and they tell tell their friends, and then their friends want to come out and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah, really the, cool. The entries um, are open for next year, and I think they've all already almost filled up because of word of mouth. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. So. I guess we've kind of touched a little bit on it. What made you want to do <laughs> Do you want the real answer? <laughs> it just sounded like yeah. fun. <laughs> um, when mum, when mum okay. told me that she had signed up for it, I yeah. wasn't. And she said, will you do it with me? I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. That's ridiculous. But then I was thinking <laughs> that. I did want a challenge, and I was considering the God Zone, mm. but I just wasn't sure if that was what I really wanted to do. And I do love running more than I love multi-sport, and so I yep. took another look at this and thought, actually, why not? And it was as simple as that. Help me go through the hard times. Just oh yeah, it sounded like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be a pretty special, special person to look at a 320-kilometer seven-day race. Um, pretty much unsupported, and oh, that looks like fun. <laughs> yeah, um, kind of. When you say it like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's just my way of painting it because it doesn't sound fun to me. But I can yeah. see it appeal because the equivalent kind of thing, biking perhaps would seem like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a big part, obviously, setting these massive goals for these big things. If if you're brought into it right from the start, in terms of it's okay, actually, this is going to be fun how do I make it fun the whole way through um, mm. can really help achieve that goal out the other end. I was just going to say the fun part, part is almost the achievement of a goal or the setting of a goal mm-hmm. and then working without even knowing how you're going to achieve it and then working your way towards it till it, it moves from feeling impossible into maybe this is possible and then actually doing it. I think there's something in that maybe the actual running wasn't that fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, and as a, another friend of ours recently said to me, you weren't present at the time, but you never see someone running with a smile on their face. And uh, I was like, hmm, let's think about that for a minute. And you don't often see someone running down the middle of the road with a smile on their face. Um, maybe you haven't seen me running. The, like you said, 
<laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll pass it on to him. But I guess that, like you said, the the, um, the build up of the make you know structuring the training, getting the, your volume up, so the, the feeling of achievability is there, um, mm. and it's helping to switch that mindset from okay, it's impossible, never going to work, I'm just going to keep slogging away, but it's not going to happen. To hmm, actually, I do feel like I could probably do this, um, mm. and then that completion of the goal, yeah, it must be must be a surreal feeling. Um, at, you know, it's, it's like seven times the normal goal, essentially, isn't it? Because it's seven days of an ultramarathon. Mm, seven, yeah, seven times yeah. a runner's high at the end. Pretty cool. Um, but I guess on that then, so yeah, I know you said on average you've run 83 kilometres a week in the last 12 months. But, uh, a general kind of average week of training for you in the build-up to this Alps to Ocean, um, what would that roughly look like from a... From a, a sort of the type of running you're doing, and also the, I guess the volume. Um, I th- so I do commute running. I live about four kilometres from work, and it's mostly downhill in the mornings, and then mo- all uphill in the afternoons. So probably on a Monday and a Wednesday, and maybe sorry, maybe a yeah, Monday and a Wednesday, I would just run to and from work. That would be it. Um, and then on a Tuesday and a Thursday, typically I would run to work, so just under half an hour, and then um, so pretty running pretty slowly. And then I would normally run about two hours to get home, two two and a half hours. So I'd run okay. via Flagstaff, so look for all the hills possible, <laughs> and yep. so just kind of build it into my work day as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take you half an hour to get home, no matter how you how you whether you drive or you bike or whatever so I just try and tag onto that and I listen to lots of audio books as well and then on the weekends on a Saturday and Sunday I'd usually try and do back-to-back days because I knew that that was the most important thing in my training was to practice running back-to-back and being able to do that so on the weekends I'd probably do between three and four hours or maybe say three three and a half or four hours on a Saturday followed up by three hours on Sunday and then take sometimes I'd take like Monday and or Friday off as unless I ran and just did it easy. But I'd definitely make sure I had at least one rest day, complete rest day a week. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting, I guess, around that community side of things and um, I know that concept of you know, the half an hour that it takes you to get there is almost the same no matter what. Uh, I mean it used to be in ten, you know, okay, it's five minutes to town. But it's not anymore. Like the, the no. even in Dunedin, in a small town, the the mould has shifted, and obviously Auckland and those bigger cities around New Zealand, it's a lot worse mm. as well. So, but I've you know not everyone can, um, given the nature of where they work or the how they have to get to work. Um, but being able to incorporate training into your commuting time is a fantastic use of time. Um, yeah, and gets you on those double double runs. You know, mm-hmm. exercising twice in one day is hard enough for anybody. But when you okay, I'm just going to run to work. I'm going to run home, and you've run, you know, eight, nine, uh, eight to ten k's across yeah. two runs. Um, yeah. And there are some really cool, I guess, metabolic effects that can accompany double runs, so back to back on the same day. Um, and you know, four or five k's is probably enough. It's just the the effect that you're exercising twice um, at mm. either end of the day. Um, mm. uh, and then obviously you mentioned those those sort of back to back bigger runs, um, which is also, I mean, obviously, you, you can't run seven days and try, you know, train the distance as some people would talk about for a marathon or a half marathon. Um, mm. But those back-to-back long days, 
really do start to add in a lot of sort of fatigued running, um, which is fantastic, I guess, for what you're up against, um, yeah. how you move your body when it's fatigued. Um, when you're, you know, your Achilles aching, how do you keep running downhill? Um, yeah. And so that's, that's really, sounds like a really structured approach um, that was very sensible. I still, I always run, and I've always done this, um, according to feel. So if I'm really tired, I don't train. So I'm not one of those people that can push through and just go, right, this is on my training plan because I don't have a coach. Um, I have people like you who give me help and just, do you think you're, you know, is that the right thing? But otherwise, I, I largely go based on what I think is structured, but I always put room in for I'm really, really tired. I'm just not going to train today. Um, and I think that's always served me quite well. Uh, and that's a fantastic approach uh, to training if you have the self-motivation like you do, um, that you don't need the Monday to Sunday structure and you can be really flexible with based on how you feel. Mm. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, can't, can't do that because they need, they need the, it's almost like the, the school teacher telling them what to do each day um, mm. to get it done. Um, and... <laughs> No, please go. If, if someone tries to set a plan for me, I, I just seem to, I can't do it. I just, I seem to struggle. I do the opposite. So it works better if I don't have a lot of structure. Mm. I have That's a general what I need to do. I know the kilometres yeah. or I know the types of runs I need to do and I just make it up each day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, the, I think that's the, the crux to it. You know, you know roughly what you need to do. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people who have come before us and can share some knowledge as to, okay, this is the general kind of structure you need. Um, you know, you need to do a couple of speedier runs and need to do a longer run each week and then make the rest up around that. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm much the same. I mean, it's, it's not great that the coach doesn't like to be coached, but I, I don't necessarily do that well with a, a structured Monday to Sunday plan because I like to be able to go uh, and do that track because it's really good mm. today and tomorrow's going to be pouring down with rain type of thing. So mm. it's an interesting uh, thing, I guess, with structure versus unstructured in a, environment where we, we utilize things like training plan our training peaks and um, Strava and so forth to plan training um, but it's not always the best fit for a person um, mm. but they need advice and how, how do you get that advice across how do you monitor them without giving them a, a plan on a training peaks or top of platform yeah that's a good point I am very structured in every other period, part of my life so it is a bit surprising a group of friends for her spreadsheets um, for, yes. for various things, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, so I can contest to that. <laughs> <laughs> so we've looked at, I guess, your average week of training. What What do you think was your biggest week of training then? Uh, my biggest week was 150 kilometres, which was a lot more than I normally did. So most of my well, my high weeks were about 110, 120. Never got anywhere over that. And I had yeah. one week, which was also my worst week of training that um, where I did 150 kilometres, but it so happened I tried to do two, probably about six weeks out from the race, and I tried to do two back-to-back -back days of about 50k each day, just trying mm, to simulate okay. the race. Everything went wrong, absolutely. I got blisters where I've never had blisters, yeah. and it seemed like my pack wasn't working, my shoes weren't right, my socks weren't right, I... Just nothing, and and I think my biggest issue was I walked rather than I than running. So I decided yeah. that I would, um, you know, people said, oh, chances are you might end up walking, 
And so I thought, well, I better practice walking, but it didn't work for me. So that I, the first day I tried to walk and I was a complete mess and I cried at the end of the day and I thought, I, how am I going to do this race? Like, what am I, you know, mm. am, I, am I kidding myself? It was such, it was definitely my low point in my training. And then um, the next day I thought, I've just got to get up and, and do this again because if this happens in the race, then I'm going to have to do it. So I got up and taped my feet and, um, and then I just decided I wasn't going to do any more walking. So that was my, that was my get, yeah. get, out, of, get out of trouble card was <laughs> just run rather than walking. Yeah. Walking does not work for me. Yeah. No. But it taught me a lot about what not to do, and yeah. that was my last long run. And I did actually do what you're not supposed to do, where I changed things up because of everything that didn't go well. And when I did the race, there was some things that I tried that I hadn't practiced because I think I'd practiced everything that wasn't going to work yeah. ahead of Yeah, <laughs> not ideal. <laughs> no, but... I mean, I guess in one way you can look at that as being, you know, that was a, a, a shit week of training and all this, the stuff went wrong. But in essence, that is probably what helped make you so successful come race week. I think I was getting a bit cocky because everything had gone really well. And I was like, oh, yeah. this has been great. And then um, that week, that week I realized how much I needed my blister kits and I needed to understand how I was going to manage my feet. Um, I needed to get my nutrition better than what I had had. Yeah. yeah, so it's good. Sometimes those things where you feel like you're a failing actually are the best thing that happened to you. Yeah, totally. And that's the, I guess, the number one thing for these longer events. You know, for, maybe for a half marathon, marathon it's not as important unless you are, you know, very fresh to that kind of distance. Um, but being able to get out on a, you know, in your case, you're actually on the course. Mm, um, I and was. It's not yeah. always possible, but something very similar to the course in terms of underfoot terrain, um, if it's a gravel road, you know, you want to be on a gravel road. If it's a, a tarmac run, you want to be on the tarmac, trying out your shoes, your nutrition, your packs, everything for a decent period of time, not just a, a couple of hours, oh yeah, the shoes feel fine. You know, it's not until the, the sixth and seventh hour that you start to notice those little annoyances about a pair of socks or a shoe, pair of shoes or something like that. Mm, um, that's so, so true, yeah. Yeah, um, so it's, it's a lot to be said for, for picking that weekend, you know, six weeks is a you know, great time for a running race gives you a really good time to recover, but it also mm. gives you that extra time. Okay, hey, hey, things went wrong. What do I, what do I need to do? Yeah. And a few weeks to wear some shoes in, or to, to break a pair of socks in, or to, to try a couple of different meals for your nutrition and so forth. Mm. Um, so, mm. so that's cool. Mm. That's cool. Um, I'm intrigued about the nutrition component to it. Um, obviously, that's that's a um, something I'm very, very interested by. Is nutrition, um, and you know, two thousand two hundred calories a day is not a lot when no, it's not an average person. Um, so, you know, I on an average day would need like two and a half thousand calories just without doing anything. That's just normal day to day stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so you're under eating that way. Obviously, there's there's a bit of a weight difference between the two of us, but when you consider that you're exercising for hours and hours each day, um, mm -hmm. what did you take with you? I guess given the weight limits. And how did you, did you feel hungry? Did you find that you had stomach issues? Was there anything in that nutrition plan that didn't quite go how you'd hoped? Uh, there was a lot of stuff that didn't go to plan. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes in this area. So if I went back and did this again, I would definitely change the food aspect. I had the same food every day. And that was my mistake number one, because all I craved was variety when it 
when I got up. I was like, what? I've got to have oats and one square meal bars for seven days in a row. That's not fun. Um, even though the minimum was 2,200 calories, I took about 3,000 for each day because mm. I knew that that was definitely not going to be enough. But the weight restrictions was a huge restriction. So the yeah. things that I trained on and um, I love to train with wraps with avocado and hummus and like really good um, plant-based whole food as much as possible. So real food, I don't like gels, never yeah. been able to eat any of that kind of food. Um, I So I tried to get as much natural food as possible and I trained on that. But when it came down to it, the, in the days leading up to it, I kept on weighing my bag and I was overweight <laughs> and I had to keep switching food out things yeah. that I didn't really want um, yeah. and that was that was really tricky and a lot of people got sick after Alps to Ocean and I think that that's a big component of it that you're yeah. not getting any real food I literally ate powdered dried food for a whole week and that was that was tricky so my mm. typical day was a couple of um, things of rolled oats for breakfast I had tailwind tailwind is the only electrolyte that I've been able to have successfully through ultra other ultra races and mm -hmm. not get stomach issues. So I had quite a few calories of that. And if I did it again, I'd have, I'd take more because um, it's yep. really hard to eat after days upon days um, mm. of running. I also took a lot of the raw bars. So like series organics, raw bars, and that, they were quite hard to eat after a few days and M's cookies. So a lot of food that I would normally not want to eat, but I knew that I had to eat a lot during the day and I had lots of nuts and lollies and that the nuts were great from a calorie density point mm -hmm. of view. And I, for the evening I had some food that was like vegan freeze dried food, which probably sounds terrible, but it was actually really, really good. And most of my meals were about 600 calories for the evening, but okay. it was never enough. And my, my only no. treat that I had was 75 grams of chips. So I was like, salt and vinegar chips or green onion. I had that, and that was what I looked forward to every day. Yeah. About three, 350 calories in, in, the, in my chips. <laughs> yeah, it, it must be tricky when you're, you're trying to weigh up the, the benefit of food based on how many calories it's giving you. Mm. Um, you know, and, and pretty much all other races, it's like, okay, well, I can take a whole plastic container full of food and mm. go past there and pick it up every couple of, you know, maybe every 50Ks or something. Um, yeah. But now you, you literally, okay, oh, that bar's only 40 calories versus this one, which is 60. <laughs> so I'm going to take that one, which I may prefer the other one better. Um, yeah. And that's really yeah. tricky. It is tricky. And I I ate really well for the first couple of days, and I went into the Alps to Ocean knowing that I had to eat every day, not for that day, but for the future days. And I knew that I would mm. never get through it if I didn't eat well. And for the first three days, I was really good. Although, so the, the first two days were about 50Ks each day. And then the third day was 90 kilometers. So that was a massive increase. And I did well until about the 60K mark. And after that, I really struggled to eat. And I was beating myself up because I thought, this is the whole point you've got to eat, even though you don't want to eat and you can't eat and you're, it's coming back up again. You've got to eat yeah. because otherwise you're putting the rest of the week in jeopardy. Um, mm. On the rest day, I took a break from anything that was sweet. So I did 
there was people were kind. People had couscous and mashed like potato and gravy that was um, dried, so you just had to add water to it. And that kind of food was what I craved. And I wish that yeah. I'd taken more noodles, more um, like potato and gravy, and anything that was savoury, crisp bread. I wish I'd taken my wraps, even though I might have had to take less clothes or something like that, just to be able to get it in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it seems to be a common thing. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone after a race say, I wish I had more sweet food. Mm. Um, you know, so many sports nutrition, whether it be electrolytes, gels, bars, are sweet. They um, are. And your body, you just can't, you just get to a point of just being so sick of sweetness. Um, mm. So I can certainly appreciate wanting some, some powdered potato and gravy or something like that. Yeah, well, I'm vegetarian, and I think I might have had some chicken gravy, but I didn't care. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was just probably, really hungry. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's probably certain points in, in life, and that might be one of them where a, a little bit of chicken gravy is not going to yeah. be a I heart. decided it was worth it for, just to get rid of the hunger yeah. pains. And, yeah, totally. Um, and so I guess on the, on the back of that, I was going to ask you what your darkest moment in the race was, but you might have just talked about that to do with uh, um, that 60K stage and that big day. Uh, no, no. I think the I had two dark moments. One was on the second day, which surprised me. I didn't expect to feel bad probably about 25 Ks into the 50 K day on the second day. And I yep. suddenly found myself walking and I couldn't believe it that I was walking and I thought, what's wrong? But I just couldn't seem to pull myself together and I've eaten well and I was running well and, and someone ran past me and but I said, oh, how are you going? And he said, oh, this is terrible. I'm really, really struggling. And there's something just in sharing a bit of pain that actually takes you out of that moment. And I was mm. almost, I was on the verge of crying, and I was like, this is horrible. Um, I'm not enjoying this. How am I going to – what was I thinking doing this? But somehow just sharing that pain really lifted me out of it, and I ended up running with that guy for the rest of the day. And it turned out he had a daughter the same age as me, and we became best friends, and we ran in a train, like just – helping each other out for the rest of the day so that was that was a moment but actually my last day surprisingly was the worst day and that was my birthday and we only had only had 30 k's on the last day and I woke up and I thought I've got nothing I had and I was hungry and I couldn't bring myself to eat anything I had my breakfast which was oats and I had um my tailwind as I was running and that was the hardest day I've ever run. I was in the hurt box for three hours and I cried constantly throughout that morning. Just I just couldn't believe how much pain I had by that by that yeah. stage I had blisters on every toe. So I'd managed a couple of days at the start without getting blisters and I've always got blisters when I'm running. So to go two days without having any showed that my preparation was good. But mm -hmm. I think just the sheer volume, like everyone had blisters. And I also hurt my Achilles on the, actually on the rest day was when I noticed it, but I must have hurt it on the third day and the long day. And so I ran for three days with a really swollen Achilles. And on the last day, I could barely put my feet in my shoes because they were so swollen. So yeah. that was a tough day. And even when I finished at the finish line, I just was crying because I was like, I'm just hurting so much. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was definitely the darkest. It, but I knew then I was going to finish, so I was kind of mixed with the, I have yep. actually done this, but it was like, this just hurts. This hurts more than I've ever experienced in my life. Yes. I guess that kind of emotional wave won't have been helping that component too, the, the thought, okay, I'm, I'm about to finish this race, it's only 30 k's to go, 
it's mm. you know a fraction of what I've come. Um, I'm going to see, see you know friends and family. It's my birthday. Like all this emotional stuff going on, but you're physically just wrecked as well. So those emotions are right at the centre or right at the surface, um, mm. just waiting to kind of be be sort of exposed. So um, it's not, it doesn't surprise me that that last thirty k's was the toughest. Mm. Uh, and it'd be interesting to know if other people found the same thing um, along the way. Yeah, judging by the times, everyone seemed to run really fast that day, so they yeah. clearly had held a bit more back than what I did. <laughs> yeah, running, running to the food. Yes, yes. <laughs> the pub. Real food. <laughs> Real food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, we, we could probably delve into to many different components of this Alps Ocean, um, uh, but I kind of want to wrap it up with a, a question as to if you could go back and do this tomorrow, would you, A, do anything differently, but would you go back and do it again? Um, I would go back and do it again. I didn't cool. think I would. Not for, it took me about three days to come around to, well, maybe I could do that again. Maybe I could go a bit faster. Because um, yeah. it was hard to know how much to push yourself each day because you didn't know how mm. much you had to hold back for the end. So if I went, if I went back and did it again, I would do my food the food situation differently but otherwise I was thinking about this what would I do differently I sometimes spent a bit more time by myself at the end of the day because I was so tired but in hindsight I wish I'd spent more time going around and meeting all of the different people that did it because there was 120 people that started and 98 that finished and everyone had a story and I did mm. meet a lot of people, but I think there were still people I didn't quite get to and chat to. And I think I would do that slightly differently. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, I'd do it. I'd do it all again, and I'd maybe go try and go a bit faster. Cool. That's really. I mean, it's, it's great when people, you know, something of that kind of magnitude, and are, are happy to say, yeah, actually, I would do. That was. It was cool. And that kind of helps, I guess, gives credit to the race organisers and, and the whole process of the race, uh, mm-hmm. but also to your planning and your testament. You know, you, uh, while your food was a bit there, um, the, the rest of it went pretty smoothly. Um, yeah. And that's, that's your planning and, and I guess, preparation. So um, it does lead me to one question that I've got to ask at the start. How long, how long did it take to run 325 kilometres? Uh, for me, I was just under 41 hours. I think the fastest guys were in the low 30 hours. They were still doing ridiculous mm. speeds on the first day. And my mum finished in about 63 hours. So it was a huge range oh, in terms yeah, of... That is, yeah. Yeah. But 41 hours, that's like, it's just like going to work for the week, isn't it, really? It is. Except it's a good work walk, week. Or you sat down and cooked at Amaru by foot. It's quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, I just wanted to, to go through a couple of... Yes, other questions around running in general, just to, to help paint the pictures to, to what makes you you um, mm. and for people that meet you in the future at various races. Um, but why why do you run or what, what made you start running? Because um, I know, you, you know you've know you biked and you've done some swimming and, and, and gym work, etc. Um, but what, what is it about running that, that rings your bells? I started running properly when I was, well, I started running when I was about 21 or 22. And to be honest, I did it to lose weight because I was quite chubby and I never really did. I had a few years after I left school where I never did any exercise. So I probably weighed about 10, 15 kgs more than I do now. 
and so running was my way to try and get fit and it was easy because you just need a pair of shoes and you just go outside and so I started mm. I was literally I remember probably my first run was I ran down the road about maybe 500 meters and I was absolutely spent and so I sat down on the side of the road because I thought I can't go home already um I've only run like 500 meters and I'm trying to lose weight so I need to like do something and so I sat there for about five ten minutes until I decided it was a decent enough amount of time then I walked back home and I was like oh this is not good running's not good yeah but um Slowly over time, I think I, I think I did, if I'm honest, I started running as a way to escape and to try and, um, I guess I was working through a lot of things when I was in my early 20s. <coughs> yeah. And so I used running as a bit of an escape. But someone introduced me to trail running when I was probably about 25, 26. And from there, I never looked back. And I mm-hmm. running beca- became my favorite thing to do and it was no longer something that I was trying to run away from maybe my life or myself but it was actually my happy place and it was where I went to reflect on life and I learned a lot about myself and um, just loved being outside and I've never stopped that so I love the trail running it's it's yeah I just love I don't do it because I have to and I never run if I don't want to but I just love it yeah yeah, and that's, I guess, when you when you talk to a lot of people that do, not just ultra running, but trail running in, in particular, um, mm. it's that love of being on the trail. Um, you know, mm. often you're by yourself or with a small group of people that you know really well. Um, you're in nature, you know, you can hear yourself crunching on the ground or you've got some of your favourite tunes in your head. Um, and it is a really sort of tranquil, um, almost mm-hmm. meditative kind of um, sport is. in that respect. Um, and I think there's heaps of people out there running on the road that should just run on a trail. Um, they should. You know, there's, there's a, yeah, it's it, it pains me to see some people running along on the road that just look like it's just it's just sucks. Like mm-hmm. you know, to get fit and to, to lose some weight, it's a it's a mode of doing that. Um, but as a, a like you said, a, a mental release um, and a kind of a spiritual almost. Um, activity it's really cool trail running yeah um, so that's really yeah. cool um now you mentioned before that you're a vegetarian yes so um not that there's i mean there's there's no right or wrong from a nutritional point of view um and i know we've had conversations about nutrition before um but as a vegetarian <laughs> um as a vegetarian how do you make sure you get adequate nutrition <laughs> probably you know me and i'm getting around the protein component um which yes. is often the hardest for yeah, everyone asks me this, how do you get your protein? And I'm not someone who can talk scientifically about it. But I just make sure I eat a really wide variety of food. I eat lots of beans and chickpeas and um, like falafel and different things and lots of brown rice and veggies. I just try and eat lots of vegetables and lots of fruit, like lots of good food that's more plant-based whole food, apart from my love of chips, potato chips after I've been running. Um, and you actually helped me, particularly in my lead up to this race, was having a protein shake after I pretty much every day in that last six weeks, I think, before I did the event. Mm. And I noticed a difference with that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just eating lots of good food. Yeah, cool. And that's a, a fantastic recommendation, I guess, for anyone, whether you eat meat or you don't. 
um, you know, eating a wide variety of vegetables, fruits, grains, um, and you know, if you are eating meat, eating the different varieties of meat as well, not just one sort of meat. Um, so yeah, so especially with, with protein shakes, um, they can be a really good addition to a, a heavy training load um, from a dietary point of view, just to get that protein level up. They're quick, they're easy, um, and you can often take them on the you know to work with you, so you can have them wherever you need to. Mm. So I have a green smoothie, green smoothie, and add the protein powder to, to my green smoothie. Nice, nice, yeah. great option, great option. Um, one thing I just wanted to ask around: How much of an influence has your mum and her journey through ultra running or ultra events been? Um, I know you've both just entered uh, a 160 kilometres, an ultra marathon miler together. Wow. Um, Kind of together. Mm. I think we egg each other on a little bit now, but I don't want her to be outdoing me, so I have to keep anything she steps up to, and I kind of need to do it too because I'm not going to be outdone by her. Yeah. Um, but I must, <laughs> I must say, I, I'm really, insp- I really admire my mum, and I think she's doing really well because she never had the opportunities that I've had. And she's only come to this kind of thing in the last couple of years. I encouraged her to enter Challenge Wanaka a few years ago. And she Mm -hmm. said, oh, no, I can't do that. And then I just planted the seed, though. And then she said, do you think I could do it? And I said, yes, I do think you could do it. So she rang the race organiser and said, what's the cutoff time? And so when she found out it was eight and a half hours or something, she thought, actually, maybe I can do it in that time. And so that's... That started her journey. She did that, and she got such a huge amount of confidence from it. And um, then she discovered, like, Naseby and the Hamner, some of these couple of places that have these ultra runs. Mm -hmm. And she walks it all. She can't run. She's hurt her back, and so walking is her mode of transport. But she is fast. She's consistent, and she has determination that I hope I've got a little bit of how much determination she's got. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let her do the Naseby <laughs> no, no, fair enough. And having having met your mum several times, I can you can certainly see the resemblance in terms of that that sort of dogged determination. Um, that you know, okay, I've set myself this goal, I'm going to get there. Um, mm. It doesn't matter how long it's going to take me, I'm going to get there. Um, and that's really cool. And and she's she's an inspiration to many, uh, but I think she could be an inspiration to a lot more um, mm. once she gets to share her story uh, from time yes. to time. Yeah, and I yeah. must say, we can't do it without my dad, though, because my dad's the best support crew ever, so I have yeah. to have a shout-out for dad because he he did the Alps to Ocean, and he, he did it last year as well, and he provided all the sound, like all the radios and all of the equipment that they need to communicate, and he put up the tents and took them down, and he's 65, and he did everything without complaining, and the first year he provided all the hot water. He got the volunteers get less sleep than what anyone else does. Mm. And he just does it with a with such a cheerful attitude and just absolutely loves to give. And he does that for mum and I. He's always taking us, dropping us off places so we can walk some track or do something yeah. and, and he'll look after us. So we couldn't do it without him. No. And it's, despite the fact that he's, he's your father, it's a great recognition, I guess, to our volunteers in these events because some of them would, you know, they wouldn't happen without volunteers. Um, no. And like you said, the volunteers put in countless hours, um, you know, more than a full-time job, week in, week out, leading up to these events. So so that's really cool that he's able to share that with you guys in his own 
way um, and not have to do the, the running or walking himself. Yeah. I asked him, yeah. do you reckon you could do that, Dan? And he said, <laughs> I reckon I could do a little bit, but not much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nicely put. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what's next for you on, on a running scale? Did you have, Nays obviously speed. you talked about Nays Peak. Yeah? Mm. Cool. And yeah. it's 100 miles? Why, nothing. I don't really have any other plans. Oh, next year, um, I'm going to go to Portugal and Spain and do some of the Camino Trail. That's probably the next big thing. Cool. Yeah, but that's more for fun. It's not a race. No. Okay. Okay. And is that your long, long-term long goal at the stage for the Camino Trail to tick some of that off? Um, no. I've never been good at having long-term goals, but my life kind of motto is to make sure it's an adventure. So mm. anything that comes along that looks like it might fit within that will be picked up. But I don't generally have the, this huge bucket list of what I want to do. I just know that I'll keep looking for new things to do all the time. Perfect. Cool. And one thing I wanted to to try and, I guess, end the conversation with is around what your advice would be for someone maybe getting into their first ultra or even getting into the, the ATO, so the Alps to Ocean Race for next year, or even just getting off the couch and starting that running journey like you talked about. Mm. Um, do you have some, some words of wisdom to share? Well, it seems quite a simple advice, but I think it's useful. It's just start. I think mm. about where I started, and it took me years and years to build up to where I am now. And people think I'm a bit extreme. But I started with 5Ks and I started with, I did a 10K race and then I just ran a little bit further and then a little bit further and tried a new thing. And I think mm-hmm. it is a journey over time that if you just start somewhere, you know, starting and taking one step is so much better. And yeah. I think even because when life gets hard, you know, anything that's hard, um, you just have to do one little step. And then the more you do, the more momentum that you get. Yeah, but mm. I would, if someone's out there thinking, I would love to have a go on ultra, but I just don't know if I could do it. I think the ultra community is not like maybe some of the sports places that I've experienced. There's a real camaraderie, and there's the person who finished the, the Alps to Ocean first, I'm sure they got a, a good cheer, but the person who came last got an outstanding response, and there's just such a great community out there of people who do ultra events and it's not about how you do it, it's about the fact that you're out there doing it. And so even if you walk it, even if you have to, you know, stop or whatever, I would just say to people, give it a go because you'll never, ever regret it. And find someone like me who's made a lot of mistakes and (laughs) pick their brains so that you can learn a lot and not have to make the same mistakes. That would be my other piece of advice. Yeah. And I think, like I said, because that ultra community is so so supportive, I mean, even, you know, half marathon and marathons have, have the same sort of communities if you find the right people. Um, there, there are a lot of people willing to share advice to um, certain mm. people. And, um, and like I said, just start. And that can be applied to any sport, any facet of life. You know, you mm. want to quit your job, you've got to start somewhere. You do, yeah. Um, so it can be applied to any area. So that's really cool. That's really cool. But thank you, Sarah, for giving us your time. I'm sure people are um, getting to know you, but also getting to know a little bit about that event and, and what made it all sort of tick. Um, and you might have a few friendly faces coming up and saying hello at Naseby that have seen you on the, on the podcast. 
hopefully. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to share my passion and chat about it. So thank you. No worries. Thank you. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. Make sure you check out the range of t-shirts we have over at the Exponential Performance Podcast store. And this includes the Harden Up t-shirts. All the profits from these will go straight back into the podcast directly to help the production of it. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you next week.